You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I do want to remind you and encourage you uh, that we have uh, a big move coming up uh, to uh, our new location. Our first Sunday there will be February 26th. So go ahead and put that in your mind. Uh, If you show up here, uh, you will be lonely. Um, And uh, though we will not have the sweet smell of popcorn, uh, we will, uh, I'm sure, have some of the best dessert and coffee we've ever had on that day Um, and uh, to celebrate uh, that new day. But to get ready for that new day, uh, just as any move, uh, we have some uh, some moving days uh, that we're going to ask for your help. And so you'll hear more about this in announcements, but uh, this is one of those things that's worth hearing twice. And so uh, I just want to put on your radar February 12th, um, which is next Sunday. Um, in the afternoon, we are going to uh, be painting and uh, moving some things over to uh, our new storage uh, area. And so we, we can't obviously move everything just yet because we still have uh, another Sunday. Uh, that will be here before that point, but uh, we have some kids' rooms downstairs that we're going to paint and uh, and get some things moved into uh, to the storage. And so that'll be February 12th. We'll be wrapped up in time uh, for you to catch uh, the Super Bowl uh, as the Bengals uh, didn't make it, uh, but uh, the Chiefs uh, look to, uh, to to take on uh, the Eagles. And uh, I'm sure you guys all have vested interest in that. And, uh, and so, um, but uh, <clears throat> we... Um, uh, we'll finish up uh, before that. But then the following Sunday on the 19th is kind of our big day uh, because we're finally done here and we'll need to move over. So the 19th and, and then we're also going to be doing some work on the 20th. But the 19th, we're, we're going to invite you if you can just stay here after church. We'll feed you. Uh, we'll load things up into our trailer as well as perhaps to some cars. We'll take it over. We'll unload it um, for those who need to go home uh, for a little bit or have a nap for uh, yourself or your kid, whichever excuse you want to use. Um, uh, you can get a nap in, come back in the evening. We'll have dinner. We'll do some more work. Uh, we're really just trying to get everything set up uh, to where we where we want it to be. Um, and then on the 20th, we'll have uh, a little extra work that we're doing as well. So circle those dates on your calendar. Um, if, uh, if you have painting skills uh, that... Uh, uh, that you've been hiding, uh, or you watch HGTV uh, more than twice a month, uh, you qualify uh, for these projects, um, and uh, and then we have some, of course, some other other work uh, to do. So, uh, so excited for that! Uh, really looking looking forward to our move. But Mark chapter five. So. <clears throat> I know with online shopping today that we often uh, maybe don't do as much in-store shopping, but one of my favorite experiences about shopping in a store uh, is when you go in, I especially love this about, uh, you know, like the big box retailers or even like a grocery store. You can kind of tell what the season is by what they put out on the shelves, right? Like they, they often are signaling uh, that we're turning the corner. Like you may, it, you may be going in to get a last minute Valentine's, uh, but too bad because you're going to get Easter stuff, right? Like uh, February 12th rolls around, I think, and they roll out the Easter stuff, you know? So um, I think one year I accidentally, uh, but that sometimes you have the leftovers, you know, from the previous season. So I think one year for Easter, I accidentally bought uh, uh, the Reese's hearts, you know, rather than the eggs, uh, just because they happen to be out uh, on the shelf, you know, but, but they kind of uh, indicate what the season is. And sometimes we get frustrated because, uh, you know, after Halloween, it's like we automatically 
automatically jump to Christmas and all the Thanksgiving enthusiasts are like, what about Thanksgiving? You know, should we not be grateful? Like, let's celebrate Thanksgiving. And, um, and so, but uh, a lot of the retailers are trying to preview the coming season and to get you to think about the season that's to come and to get you to be prepared for the season that's to come by the stuff they put out on the shelves. And so uh, when we think about that kind of idea of what's being put out on the shelves as a preview uh, of the season that's to come, in many ways, that's what Jesus's miracles are. Jesus's miracles are the preview of the age or the season to come. And when we think about Jesus's miracles, and as we have been in Mark chapter five, we see and back into chapter four, we see uh, really a series of miracles that are held together by this theme of Jesus demonstrating his power, his power over nature. Uh, we see his power over uh, over Satan and evil spirits and driving out the man with a demon. We see his power over sickness and his power even over death. Uh, we, we see these miracles that are putting on display something about what is to come. And Jesus's miracles, you could say, function as a sign of the coming season. And that coming season is the arrival of the kingdom of God. So they are a sign of the arrival of the kingdom of God and the ministry of Jesus and a foretaste of what is to come when his kingdom is established in full. Sometimes we look at the miracles and it's easy to think, okay, well, Jesus did all these miracles, therefore they must be, they must continue on until he returns. But uh, what we see throughout the scriptures is that the kingdom is already and not yet. The kingdom has arrived in the coming of Jesus. Jesus showed up in Mark chapter one, verse 15. He said, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he showed that the kingdom is at hand through his arrival, demonstrating his great power and the signs of the kingdom. These great miracles of putting to right what was wrong and, and healing what was sick and restoring what is broken and redeeming and uh, delivering those who are in bondage. This is all a picture of what's to come in the kingdom of God. We, we get this uh, preview of, uh, of the arrival of the kingdom and then this foretaste of what's to come. When the kingdom is fully established, there will be no more pain. There will be no more sickness. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more bondage. In the kingdom, Jesus will turn upside down sorrow and sickness and bring about restoration to health and life. His miracles are this sign and foretaste of what's to come. And it's important as we look at Jesus's miracles to understand what they're telling us. They're telling us ultimately something about Jesus and something about Jesus that, that Jesus came to accomplish. And so what I want us to, to see this morning is <clears throat> the miracles um, are showing us that because Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming, we can live by faith even in the face of our most desperate circumstances. Because Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming, we can live by faith, even in the face of our most desperate circumstances. You see, in this passage, we're going to see two different people with two desperate situations and one great need. <clears throat> Somehow that equals five, I think. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> two people. The two people we see, the first one we're introduced to in verse 21, as Jesus comes back uh, across the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> he gets out. There's a great crowd that meets him. And it says, then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, fell at his feet. So Jesus <clears throat> is encountered by this man 
named Jairus, who is a ruler in the synagogue, who's likely a man of, of some stature in the community um, and, and somewhat of a unique occurrence in the Gospels of, of all the people Jesus is in, that Jesus interacts with. Very few of them are named, but Jairus is here given a name. And most likely, uh, and I point this out because in Matthew's account of this interaction, Matthew doesn't record uh, his name in Matthew chapter 8. But here, Mark records his name, and it's possible that Peter knows Jairus, uh, that Peter perhaps has a relationship with him. And Peter, being the primary source for Mark, perhaps is able to recall this piece of information and Jairus's story. But we're introduced to uh, Jairus, who is of some stature, who we know his name, who's able to run to Jesus and fall at his feet. But the second person is presented in a different light, and it's a suffering woman. In verse 25, after we see J Jesus is willing to go with Jairus to, to help him in his situation, we see that as Jesus is on the way, there is a woman who has a discharge of blood who encounters him. Unlike Jairus, she isn't given a name. Most likely she has no standing in the community. In fact, because of her issue, as it related to, uh, to this hemorrhaging issue, she was uh, an outcast, unclean, unable uh, to participate uh, in, uh, in, in worship and, and, and the, in the community uh, that, uh, that she was a part of. Jairus comes to Jesus face to face and falls down at his feet, runs out of the crowd and makes a beeline to Jesus. This suffering woman crawls in the crowd and comes up behind Jesus and, and just reaches out to touch him. Perhaps because of shame, perhaps because of being an outcast. But either way, we have these two different people who are going to experience a life-changing interaction with Jesus. And in their interaction with Jesus, what it reveals to us is the truth of Jesus' power over sickness and death. It's, but it doesn't just teach us that, that Jesus is, is powerful and able to heal the sick and, and to raise the dead. This is what I mentioned earlier. This is the sign of the kingdom, the, the picture of what Jesus is going to do. It reveals that he indeed is king, that he is the one who's going to establish his kingdom. He's not going to do it all at once. He comes to, uh, to, to inaugurate the kingdom in his first coming, but he will bring it to its full uh, measure in his return. But here he gives us this sense that in the kingdom of God, God is going to set right what's been made wrong because of sin. God is going to set right what's been broken because of the sin-stained world that we live in. And we see the power of Jesus uh, most clearly in these two, these two different people's situation because the situation they share is one of desperation. Two different people with two desperate situations. If you go back and you consider Jairus, it tells us in verse 21 uh, that Jairus comes to him, falls down at his feet. You can, you can just see the matter of, uh, of urgency that is presented. It says he sees him, he falls at his feet, and he begs. And in fact, the, the, the other group that's uh, here in this passage is the, the crowd. It says twice in verse 21 and verse 24 that a great crowd had gathered around Jesus. A lot of times the crowd throughout the Gospels reveal the popularity of Jesus. But here, in some ways, they're the, the backdrop against which we see the desperation of Jairus and this woman. The crowd is just there 
to hear Jesus. They just want to hear what he has to say. They just want to see what he has to do. But Jairus doesn't want to just sit around in the crowd and watch and wait for Jesus to do something. He sees Jesus, he falls at his feet, and he begs Jesus. It's a picture of desperation, and his desperation is that his little girl is dying. He says to Jesus in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be weighed well and live. And I, I love the simplicity of uh, what Mark says next. He says, so Jesus went with him. <clears throat> and time and time again, we, we see throughout the scriptures how Jesus makes himself available to people. He just went across the Sea of Galilee in the beginning of this chapter for no other apparent reason than to meet this man in bondage to demons, his life wrecked, an outcast separated from, from others, no hope. And Jesus shows up, delivers him from bondage to sin and Satan, commissions him to go and tell how much the Lord had done for him. And then he gets on the boat and goes back. That's it. That's the only thing that happens. That, that guy is what Jesus came for. And here, Jesus gets back. And no doubt, uh, Jesus comes, and, I, and I'm sure Jesus isn't unaware of what he wants to do, but here he is before this great crowd. He leaves this great crowd to follow this one man who had a desperate request. Help my little daughter. The passage is interesting because it's, it's interrupted. Jairus's story is interrupted, uh, so to speak, by uh, this suffering woman that Jesus encounters on the way to help him. And Jairus' situation goes from desperate to even more desperate because after being prolonged, and you can only imagine how difficult it was for Jairus to wait because he hears eventually that his little girl has died. So Jairus' day is bad, but it gets worse. So we see the desperate situation of Jairus' dying daughter, but then we see this picture of a suffering woman. It says again that this great crowd followed him and it thronged about him. There's this sense of you can imagine the energy and the excitement and the buzz that was in the crowd as they followed Jesus, wondering what was going to happen. They had perhaps heard about what had happened across the way uh, or, or perhaps had remembered the, the teaching and the, the great crowd that had gathered just days before to hear Jesus teach about the kingdom of God in, in, in Mark chapter 4. And it says they're going with him. And, and you can imagine it's somewhat difficult to, to move, right? To, to have this big crowd uh, going with you that is excited. And uh, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, it would be like uh, exiting, you know, the big house after the 29 to 7 victory over Michigan State, you know, and you're, you're trying to get out and there's this big crowd and it's all pushing in against you and you feel uh, the, the excitement and the energy. It's hard to move around. And in the midst of that crowd, it says that this woman reaches out and touches Jesus. And we've already seen this woman has what's a hemorrhaging issue, most likely due to being menstrual in nature. Um, and this has defined her life for the last 12 years, it tells us. But, but notice the way if you go back in verse 25 and 26, I think Mark intentionally is demonstrating the desperate nature of her situation because uh, he he. 
he basically gives this long description in the beginning of verses 25 through 26 um, and or, uh, through 25, 26. And then it's not until the very end of 27 that we actually find out what she did. It says in verse 25 that there was a woman. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. It tells us that she had spent uh, and suffered much under many physicians. She had sought help in every way and she had spent all that she had. And, and as a result, she was no better, but rather grew worse. But then she had heard reports about Jesus. And it says that she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Her situation is one of, of, of total, um, total desperation and inability uh, to, to find help. She's got no other option. She's spent all her money. She's seen everybody. She's got a second and a third and a fourth opinion. There's no hope. The only hope she has is she's heard about Jesus. And her and Jairus in their desperate situation do the same thing. They come to Jesus. And time and time again throughout the scriptures, we see desperate people coming to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jairus and this woman do. They, <clears throat> we're not told what Jairus knows about Jesus. We just know that he's convinced that if he can get to Jesus, that Jesus can help his little girl. But we are given a little bit of insight into what this woman thinks. It tells us that she had been saying, excuse me, in verse 28, <clears throat> she had been saying to herself, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Having heard the reports of Jesus' power to heal, perhaps she heard about how Mark, uh, uh, Mark records in Mark chapter 2, how Jesus um, heals Peter's mother who had a fever. Perhaps she has heard about some of the other miracles that Jesus has done, the man who couldn't walk, that Jesus healed, and not only healed, but forgave his sins. She just thought to herself, if I could get to Jesus, he could help me. And it's in their desperation what they do that shows us what this passage is really all about. It shows us their one great need and our great need. And that's to trust Jesus. <clears throat> you see, the passage begins with Jairus <clears throat> being interrupted by this interaction with the woman, though it's no interruption to Jesus. And, and I don't think Mark is just kind of piecemealing something together. I think there's a point in that it's really in the story of this woman that you see the, the heart of faith and the heart of what it means to, to trust Jesus. The, the buildup of all that she had experienced and all that she had walked through she comes to the point that she knew she had no other, no other option but to come to Jesus. She even, didn't even feel worthy to approach Jesus, but she was convinced that Jesus could help her. And so she comes to Jesus. She reaches out to him, and we see that Jesus' power is on display here. It tells us uh, in verse 30 that Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. And he asked, who touched my garments? Now, I can, I can just imagine that Jesus' disciples, when he's like, who touched my garment? And they're like, you know, the dude with the sandals, you know, like, <laughs> who, who, who didn't touch you, Jesus? Like, right, we're in a big crowd. But Jesus is able to discern the clamoring crowd and the faith-filled touch of this woman. That she reaches out to him, trusting that he would heal her. And I don't think Jesus asked the question because... He's fully unsure of what has taken place. It tells us he knows something has happened, that power has gone out from him as this woman has been healed. 
I think instead he asked this question as so often God does in order to, to reveal the faith of this woman and to restore her fully and publicly in her community. Jesus says, who touched me? And of course, everyone thought, how would we know? But it says upon asking this, <clears throat> the woman in verse 33, knowing what happened to her, as soon as she touched him, it says in verse uh, 31 that she was healed. Um, <clears throat> and the woman, it says, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. See, Jesus, in doing this, restores her in the sight of others, giving her dignity that she did not have in her community, but also uses this occasion to demonstrate what it looks like to trust Jesus, what it looks like to come to him and to reach out in faith to him. The whole truth that she shares wasn't a confession, but it was a testimony. It was a testimony of her believing that if she could just get to Jesus, that he could help her. Now, I also think Jesus wants to reveal here. I think that there's some superstition, perhaps, that was mixed in with what this woman thought. And, and, and throughout, we see this happen both with Peter and Paul, um, where there was this thought of people could just that power was some somehow magically transferred uh, from uh, from these these men of God. Uh, and I think Jesus is demonstrating here that his healing isn't magical. It's not a matter of superstition. It's God responding to faith. God doesn't uh, heal as a sort of kind of magical uh, um, demonstration that, that showcases um, just how special he is, but he heals in response to faith. I love how Tim Keller said this. He said, there's a difference. There's all the difference in the world between being a superstitious person who gets bodily healing and a life transformed follower of Jesus for all eternity. She, she, she may have just thought superstitiously that if she touched Jesus, she would be made better. But Jesus wants to reveal to her that at the heart of her uh, reaching out was a, was a belief that Jesus was the one that she needed, that Jesus was the one that could help her. And he says to her, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. And I think this picture of faith then falls. <clears throat> the situation with Jairus finding out that his daughter is dead on the heels of this interaction. Verse 35 tells us that word came that Jairus's daughter is dead. And it says in verse 36 that Jesus overheard what was said. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. He had just commended the belief and the faith of this woman who reached out to touch him to be healed. And now he says to Jairus, who is facing his greatest fear, what he feared when he came to Jesus has now come true. And Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus spoke to the very thing that had gripped his heart. And he called him to the one thing that he needed more than anything else, to trust Jesus. And I, I think at this point, as we see their greatest need, that we also have to consider our greatest need. 
we think about the situations and circumstances of our life, and we think about when we feel pushed to the edge, when we feel the, the thing that we fear most either has come true or may come true, what do you do? How do you respond? Do not fear, Jesus says, only believe. And this teaches us an important lesson, <clears throat> I think, about faith. See, inevitably, Jairus probably in the back of his head had thought to himself, Jesus, why are we taking so long with this woman? Can we not move on? My little daughter is in need of your help. But while Jesus willingly goes with him, he's also unhurried and stops to help this woman. And then the worst happens. His little girl is dead. It teaches us that faith is not trusting God as long as he does what we want or when we want it. That's not faith. That's actually control. Saying, I'll trust you as long as you do what I want and when I want it. But faith is trusting that God is in control no matter what. That's the kind of faith that God <clears throat> calls out of Jairus. He had seen it on display in the suffering woman. She didn't know where else to go, didn't have anything else to turn to, but she knew that if she would get to Jesus that she, she could receive the help that she needed. So she reaches out, trusting in him, trusting that he's able, has the power to heal, has the power to help her. And here in this moment, Jairus, thinking that he's come to get help from Jesus, is now faced with the, it's one thing for Jesus to come and heal his sick girl. It's another thing for Jesus to come and raise his, his dead girl from the grave. But there in that moment, in his greatest fear, Jairus chooses to trust Jesus in the midst of a desperate situation. And it says they continue on. <clears throat> and as they get closer, we're told that Jesus keeps his close circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go with Jairus and, and his wife into, uh, into the house. And as they get up to their house, it says that there, were, uh, there was a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. It wasn't uncommon in this time that there would be actually professional mourners. When somebody would die, they would gather together to properly mourn uh, the, the death of a person. And so this isn't like, uh, you know, that she's mostly dead. She's dead, dead. And the people have gathered together uh, to, to mourn her death. And there's this great commotion and uh, Jesus enters in and he says, why are you making this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and go into the house. Jesus says she's sleeping. He's not saying that she's like not really dead, but she just appears dead. Throughout the scriptures, we see that sleep is a reference to the believer's uh, death and that we will rise again. Um, and so it's a euphemistic way of speaking of someone's death, not so much to say that they're not really dead. Um, but instead, uh, we have this sense that Jesus is actually going to raise her from the dead. And so he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And he goes in and then we see Jesus reach down <clears throat> and take this little girl by the hand. And he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she got up and she began walking. She was 12 years of age and they're immediately overcome with amazement. And as Jesus so often does, he charges them not to tell anyone. <clears throat> and then he said to her, I love this part, give her something to eat. 
Jesus tells them not to say anything because as we've seen, people don't yet understand the kind of king he is or the nature of the kingdom that he is about to bring. So he commands their silence now, but one day that kingdom will be proclaimed fully and from the rooftops. And Jesus's miracles are in essence doing that, saying this is Jesus, the king and his kingdom he will bring. And in his kingdom, there'll be no more death and sickness. But the way we respond to the king, the way we respond to the promise of his coming kingdom is to trust him. Just like we see Jairus and this woman, no matter our circumstances, no matter our situation, we come and we trust him. And their desperate situation highlights the need for us to trust him even in our desperate situations, as well as our not so desperate situations. But here's what I've learned as a believer. The thing that invokes trust in me as a follower of Christ is there's not like some formula for trust. There's not like if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll trust God more. The thing that invokes trust is having a greater view of Jesus. The thing that that helps us to, to trust Jesus, even in our desperate circumstances, is having a bigger vision of who Jesus is. And the Gospels are proclaiming how glorious and amazing Jesus is. And so if we're going to trust Jesus, you need to know these three things about him from this passage. Jesus is interruptible. Jesus is interruptible. He had time for an anxious parent and a suffering woman. He's also got time for overwhelmed parents. He's got time for parents who feel filled with guilt and regret. He's got time for grandparents and great-grandparents. He's got time for people who are exhausted and hanging by a thread. He's got time for adults with all kinds of problems, as well as little kids who just simply know that Jesus said he loves the little children. He's got time for big and small. He's got time regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. He is interruptible. We may fall at his feet or we may crawl up from behind, but he's willing to see us and stop for us. No one else may be around or everyone else may be clamoring, but we can come to him. And on the authority of God's word, I can assure you that anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, he will never, no, never turn away. He's interruptible. Time and time again, we see him willing to be interrupted for those who come to him. So often our problem is we, we, we think we can't come to him. We, we think we'll come to him later after we've done this or that. Sometimes like this woman, we, we exhaust every other option that we possibly could before we come to him. We spend all our money. We spend all our time. We do all the things that we can before we come to him. Somehow thinking that he would turn us away or somehow he's not available to us. He's interruptible, but he's also compassionate. <clears throat> we see it in his willingness to, to go to Jairus' house merely upon a request 
the stopping in the crowd to, to speak to this woman, a, a turning upside down of what would be expected of Jesus. Here in this passage, Jesus is giving dignity and honor to this woman who is an outcast and to this little girl uh, who would be seen as insignificant uh, in the eyes of many uh, around. Jesus makes time and, and not only makes time, but he goes to the woman who's unclean and he restores her to wholeness. He goes to the little girl who's dead and he takes a dead girl by her hand, which by definition would have made him unclean, but by his touch of compassion, she's brought to life. Like we, we see time and time again that, that, that Jesus cares for, uh, cares for us and his care is marked by love, even when it's delayed or different than we desire. He's full of compassion. Time and time again, we'll see this later in the Gospel of Mark. It says that Jesus will look out on people and he will be moved by compassion for them. It's as if the, the response of the heart of God towards, towards people who are, who are wandering and going their own way and, and, and feeling the effects of a sin-stained world and even the effects of their own sin, it's marked by compassion. It's, it's marked as, as we see in the picture of, of Luke chapter 15, even when we, even when we go our own way and, and waste all that God has given us, there's a father standing, not only standing, but even running to welcome us home. Just as there's a father who's pleading with us not to think of ourselves too highly and above his grace and his mercy for the older and for the younger brother. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that we can come to him, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That wasn't just true for Jairus and this woman. It's true for us today because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ who stopped everything to go with Jairus and who gave time to the suffering woman is the same Christ who holds out his hand of compassion to us today. He's the same. He hasn't changed. He's, he's available to us. We can, we can come to him. I love um, Dane Ortland in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, speaking on this. He says, this Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. Christ's heart is not far off despite his presence now being in heaven, for he does all this by his own spirit. Through the spirit, Christ himself not only touches us, but lives within us. The, the compassion of God is available to us today just as abundantly as it was to Jairus, his daughter, and this woman. He's interruptible. He's not only interruptible, but he's compassionate. The final truth is that may be unsettling and may sound even strange. Jesus is uncontrollable. Not that he flies off the handle. He's not uncontrollable like the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. But in saying he's uncontrollable, he's uncontrollable by us because he himself is fully in control. Jairus wanted Jesus to come quick. But Jesus was unhurried. The woman wanted Jesus to heal her in secret and go her way, but Jesus called her out from among the crowd. It's been said, if you go to Jesus, he may ask you far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you dared ask or think. And that's what happens with Jairus and this woman. Jesus is not subject to our ways or to our thinking. He's not controlled by our timing or by our demands. 
And sometimes that's the hardest thing to accept. The hardest thing to trust is to trust in his timing and in his way. He is sovereign. By his very nature, he is in control, so he cannot be controlled. He is working out all things according to his plan. And, and I think this is, this is as we think about the application of this truth for us, is as we await the coming of God's kingdom, we live in between this now and not yet, that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but we await its full arrival. And we live still marked in this world that's stained by sin and brokenness and suffering and trials. In the midst of our waiting, what we see here now is God may not do for us what we ask now. He may not do it in the timing that we ask, but we can be confident that God is infinitely more able to do infinitely more than we can ask or think in his kingdom to come. He's telling us that as we trust him, we're not just trusting him for the here and now, we're trusting him for what is to come. And he's showing us that he can be trusted. And a lot of times, I think the hard thing is we don't understand or see why God allows things to happen the way they happen. We don't get a, a glimpse fully into his mind and his heart as to what he's doing when we're in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering. But I love the truth of Romans 8, 28 through 30, because it doesn't tell us everything that God is doing, but it gives us a glimpse and an assurance of what he intends to do. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The way that Paul states it is that those who God has called to himself in salvation, he will bring about their salvation in its fullness and glory. They will be glorified. God will do it and will accomplish it. And he is working now in our lives he says, for our good, and, his, and the definition of, his, of, of for our good is that we would be conformed to his image. And so as we, as we press into our daily life and to the, to the trials, to the sufferings that we face, to the, to the desperate and to the not desperate, how do you respond in those moments? How do you respond when Jesus seems unhurried at your request? When Jesus seems to be working differently than what you think? is best. What do we do when we go through the, the normal ebb and flow of life? When we're faced with decisions, do we rely on ourselves or do we trust in him? Do we see the, the mundane and the challenges of our everyday life as a part of how God intends to conform us to his image? Or do we, do we kind of silo out our everyday life from these other things and, and think that we can kind of control things on our own over here and, and then there's other ways in which God will work on me? Or are we allowing him to be in control of all things? Are we saying to God, I'll trust you as long as you come through in this way or you do it in this time? What's your greatest fear? Are you willing to trust God in the face of your greatest fear? See, the application from this as we await the kingdom of God is that the reality is sometimes we, we won't get the outcome that Jairus gets or that this suffering woman gets. Sometimes the chronic illness won't go away. 
Sometimes the sickness leads to death. What do we do when God doesn't heal? What do we do when God doesn't respond the way we want him to respond? Maybe it's not the greatest tragedy. Maybe it's just a disappointment, a relationship, a job, a dream. What do we do? I love what Sam Storm said in response to Romans 8. This is one of those truths that I think the scriptures teach that is hard to receive and hard to hear, but I think vital for us to receive God at his word. He said, if I believe Romans 8, 28, that God sovereignly orchestrates all the events in my life for my ultimate spiritual good and preeminently for his ultimate glory, I can only conclude that all things being equaled, if I'm not healed, is because God values something in me greater than my physical comfort and health that he in his infinite wisdom and kindness knows can only be attained by my means of physical affliction and the lessons of submission, dependency, and trust in God that I learned from it. Somehow, some way, as we trust God, as we go through our desperate situations and our not-so-desperate situations, we're trusting that God is working in his time and in his way to accomplish in us that we would be conformed to his image through teaching us even by means of our trials, even by means of our suffering, what submission, dependency, and trust in God looks like. Do you trust him? He's worthy to be trusted. He can be trusted. He's interruptible. He's compassionate. He's uncontrollable. And all of that's really good news for us. And the confidence that we have that our future is secure comes about because the one who healed here in Mark chapter five is the same one who will go to the cross on our behalf, suffer in our place, bearing the, the weight and the judgment of sin. He'll taste the fullness of death, the death that's brought about by sin, the death that we deserve because of sin, the death that's inevitable for all of us because of sin. Jesus tastes death for us and bears the penalty of our sin, but isn't defeated by it. He rises from the dead and be through his resurrection, through him dying in our place and him rising from the dead. We can have confidence that when we trust him, he is going to come through for us and and bringing about his ultimate will and purpose in our lives one day in the kingdom to come. We can trust him now and that he's working to make us more like him. And one day he'll bring it all about according to his will and his purpose for us to see. But as we wait, we trust. And our prayer is, God, give me grace to trust you more and more. Let's pray.